And so I focused amateur astronomy, my efforts on things that you can't do from the surface of Earth. My main effort in that was wide field astrophotography, where you capture a limb of the Earth in the field of view. Don Pettit's our guest today. He's a chemical engineer as well as a NASA astronaut. And he just so happens to be an avid amateur astronomer. He's been in space three times, two of which were long-duration stays aboard the International Space Station. And at age 64, he's NASA's oldest active astronaut. Dustin and I first met him back at NEEF a couple of years ago, and he agreed to be on our podcast, and, well, here he is. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Don Pettit, thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how excited we've been to do this. It's not every day, at least for us, I'm sure it is for you, but at least for us that you get to sit down and have conversations with an astronaut. And so thank you for being here. Yes, thank you very much. This is my pleasure, particularly for amateur astronomy audience. Uh, These are all my kind of people. Well, of the many things that you do, um, amateur astronomer is one of those titles, right? You yourself are an amateur astronomer as well. You still have a passion for that. I do. And this is something I started when I was in middle school. And I was just thinking back when I was in high school and I had my first little telescope, homemade, one uh, winter evening, there was a total lunar eclipse on a Saturday night. And I remember comment, and this was in Oregon in wintertime when it's typically cloudy. And I remember commenting to my mother that, isn't it amazing that here it is uh, in the middle of winter, clear night, total lunar eclipse, and it's not a school night, it's a Saturday night, so I could stay up late and see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's amazing how much, I mean, clearly it's it's helped shape your life. Now you, you know, you get closer to all of it than any of us, but it's amazing how often that story happens where people get involved in astronomy in some capacity, and it just, it never gets out of your blood. That That curiosity never goes away. It's that childlike wonder all the time. I agree a hundred percent. It's just, uh, I could look up and I have a hundred questions right away, but I also have to admit I can look down and see ants crawling around and I get another hundred questions right away. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? We have a hundred questions for you right away as well. So let's, uh, let's <laughs> yeah, dive let's, into let's some of these because the I'm so, and, and, and I've got, uh, I've got a, a a nice mug here, so I'm going to be sipping. Hey, perfect, perfect. You know, it's just uh, what you do is fascinating. I think it's um, it's got to be, and we talked about this at dinner that night, but just how 
so many things have to come together to to be capable of doing what you're doing. And it's it's funny because I remember in my kindergarten class where they have that that career day where everybody's going to say what they're going to do when they grow up. And the, the teachers had to tell us, you can't all be astronauts. Some of you have to pick firefighters. Some of you have to pick teachers. Some of you have to pick police officer because the whole class said astronaut. And then over time, you know, we all see the cartoons and you know, we see Wiley Coyote strap himself to a rocket and we all start second think second guessing things. We're like, maybe, maybe that is for Billy and not me. You know, but you did it. <laughs> you actually stuck with it and did it. And um, I just want to hear like what is what is a day in the life like for someone now that you've been to space? I mean, you've been up there looking back at the earth. It has to have changed your perspective. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. There's a, a bunch of points that I'd like to make with that. Uh, one, looking back at Earth from space, it is a phenomenal view. It reaffirms your existing beliefs. And it. I, I seldom do I see someone having an epiphany and making a 180 degree flip from what they believed before they flew into space. And my experience is people look at Earth and it reaffirms what their pre-existing beliefs are. In terms of, of uh, continuing to pursue my dream, I, I loved space. I loved uh, amateur astronomy. And I filed that away. And then when I popped out of graduate school, with a degree in chemical engineering, I realized that, hey, I'm qualified to be an astronaut. And there happened to be an astronaut selection. So I put in an application. That's probably exactly what they're looking for. Those people that are, you know, going through PhD programs saying, you know, chemistry is just not hard enough. How do we make this more difficult? Yeah. Well, well Let's actually, bring in some engineering what happened, aspects. Dustin, was I got rejected. And that was a big blow on your personal ego. But if there's a goal that you want to obtain and the first time you try it, you get rejected, uh, what you need to do is roll up your sleeves and work even harder. And I applied to the astronaut program four times over 12 years. And I got three rejections. And then uh, the fourth time, uh, I got the phone call saying, hey, if you're still interested in being an astronaut, we'd like you to come to Houston. I want to follow up with that for just a minute, because when I was a kid, I was looking at being an astronaut, too. And back in the 60s, the main requirement, it seemed to be, was military experience and flight time, right? They wanted so much flight time in various aircraft and it was like to the tens of thousands of hours. And obviously they wanted test pilots and things like that. So based on that, it sounds like the requirements to getting into the astronaut program has changed quite a bit over the decades. Would you say Is, yeah, to less required. of a military experience yeah. perspective and more towards an, an educational one? Yeah. The requirements have changed because there's several categories of astronauts. There's the pilot astronaut, which is a military person background with thousands of hours of a jet experience. And we need those kind of people because these 
these astronauts are world-class at any kind of highly dynamic moving platform. And then we have scientists and engineer astronauts, which I fall into that category, uh, where uh, you're hired not because of how good you can do stick and rudder work. You're hired because of the skill set that you bring into the program for doing other things into space besides flying the spacecraft. Right. There's more opportunities, more skill sets that are required in different areas now. So that that opens up, I think, things quite a bit. So yeah. that's a good thing, right? Yeah, it, it is a good thing. And think of launch from Earth and get to space station is, uh, call it basically a day. And to go from space station back to Earth is basically a day. Uh, what are you going to do for the other 178 <laughs> days and what you do and so uh, <clears throat> now in our space program we need more than ever people who live and breathe and think science and engineering as well as we will always continue to need the people who live and breathe and think stick and rudder work even if you go in because of the academic, you know, uh, openings like like what Tony just mentioned, I feel like there has to be, and maybe there's not, maybe I'm wrong, but there has to be this separation because it's also extremely exciting. Like I almost imagine, you know, an engineer on a roller coaster where everybody else is just having a blast, hands in the air, and the engineer's like, well, we're going to go into this 12-degree bank here at 40 miles an hour. And like it's, you know, they built the thing, they understand it, and they just feel it differently. Is is space travel or is going into space, is it more of an academic experience still for you? Or is it still just that exciting thing you imagine as a kid? It's uh, going into space is both. You understand the physics and the engineering behind it, and then you still get a little bit of, hee-haw, look at that. Isn't that amazing? And to go into space and come back to Earth and not have had that very visceral human experience is to miss a good part of what the the whole aspect of humanity going into space is about. Man, that's for sure. How did how does something like that change you? I mean, in what in what parts of your life has these trips into space changed who you are or or affected you, I guess is a better question. Yeah, it makes you more Assure of yourself. Uh, the the uh, one of my favorite quotes is by T. S. Eliot, uh, where uh, the the quote is about exploration and and the reason people explore is to go away to some place and come back and know yourself for the first time. And that's I butchered the eloquence of that expression, <laughs> but that is the essence of of why individuals explore is you you go off, you learn something new, you come back and you know yourself for the first time or the second time or the third time. Yeah, yeah in your case. I, I feel like, yeah, it's got to be um, at minimum a confidence booster. How does anybody compete with the conversation? They're like, Don, you want to know what my quarter mile time was? You're like, I circled the earth every 90 minutes. Yeah. 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 I, did I try not to engage in those 
kinds of conversations. Uh, I like to listen to other people's stories, and I add my own when asked. Were you very affected by that idea that this planet is our home and it's one of the few places that we've got, that was the only place we've got to really um, make a go of it here. What thoughts go through your head during those times when you're in orbit looking at the earth? Well, one of my observations, which is sort of contrary to the current uh, uh, thinking when I looked at Earth, for the most part, you can hardly tell that there are human beings on the planet. Most of the time, you look at ocean, and when you're over land, it's really hard to tell uh, a city area from some volcanic ash flow on the edge of the continent. Uh, nighttime is a little different, but daytime Earth I find it's difficult to tell that human beings are even on the planet. And what occurred to me is Earth is the steward for human beings, not the other way around. And planet Earth is happy to go on with or without humanity. And it's up to us to figure out as human beings how to interact with planet Earth so that we do not become just one more fossil layer eroding from some cliffside. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that would suck. <laughs> that's the, the end result of the thinking process that I went through is the same in that we as human beings need to, need to worry about surviving on planet Earth and there are certain things that we need to take care of uh, in order to survive. But Earth will be happy to go on with or without humanity. And it's not so much that we take care of Earth. We have to have a behavior that's commensurate with how Earth is taking care of us. I think that's that's such an important and such a sobering thought. And, and I would imagine that perspective looking back at the planet where you get to be a spectator instead of a participant probably does. It probably does feel that. I, I mean, I can't, you know, I've, I've never been to space. I, I can't imagine what that, that really is like. But, uh, you know, the closest I can recall ever having this, this uh, realization that we aren't like built into our surroundings, it's not all here for us, was the first time I got on an airplane when I was a child. And you get up high enough to where you can just see the the shapes of the farms and all of the land masses, the mountains and all of this stuff. And it was like, it was this exciting, but also terrifying feeling, realizing exactly what you're talking about, almost this existential realization that's like, wow, I'm like, I'm a visitor. I'm, I'm here and I get to participate but this is all so much bigger than what I ever imagined. And I, I would imagine that getting up into space, that realization hits you, you know, even harder. Yeah, it does. And another aspect is when you look out just within our solar system, you realize that Earth is a garden spot. If there is such a thing as a Garden of Eden, we are already on it. We are already there. 
Yeah, it's spectacular. Even it stands out even among the nine pl- or the eight planets that we have here in our solar system. It stands out brilliantly. Hold it, hold it. Nine uh, planets. I grew up learning that Pluto was both a planet and a dog in the Disney oh, cartoon, and I'm, I'm sticking with it. Oh you man, I was already it, a fan before you said you- that, but now. <laughs> Now, I don't care what Tony says. You're right, Don. Pluto's dead. Pluto's dead. No, it's no, a minor it's not. never, planet. never. Um, oh. So, so what's that? I mean, you're, you're an amateur astronomer, so you've looked through many telescopes from the ground. Is the view of the stars when you're up above so much of the atmosphere? I mean, is it just really so much more crisp? And like, I mean, is there a light kind of glow? that you experience from the earth or can you just see darkness in perfect views? Yeah. uh, All of the above Uh, the night sky, you know, the, the night part of your orbital pass can be really, really dark and you see uh, brightness in the stars and particularly colors in the stars that you just can't resolve when you are on the surface of earth. And, and just an example, a casual photograph of a night sky from station, if the spiral galaxy of Andromeda happens to be within your field of view, it just shows up like this big fuzzy ball, even if you took it with a wide angle lens. And that doesn't happen on Earth, primarily because of, of light scattering in Earth's atmosphere and and the effects of of a light pollution so it the the star field uh uh the visual star fields from orbit are just phenomenal i can't imagine and and i i would imagine though that you you probably spend as much time as possible exploring that do you have downtime in space do you get to be a little bit of a tourist um, when you live and work in space for six months at a time, you can't work at the intensity that we did on a 10-day shuttle mission. And you have to have off-duty time. It isn't that you have spare time. It's off-duty. It's more of a of a military concept when you're on a vessel. You're, you're never really... Uh, you never really have free time. What you are, you're either on duty or off duty. And when you're off duty, you could be called on duty at a moment's notice. And it's the same kind of thing when you're living in a spacecraft. And during your off duty time, uh, which we have uh, every day, I mean, we work about 14 hour days, uh, five and a half days a week. And, and so what do you do after you're off duty on a 14-hour day? You can uh, set up in the cupola and do amateur astronomy. And what do you do on your one and a half days off a, a week? Well, again, you could set up and do amateur astronomy or whatever uh, else is available for crews to do when they're off duty on station. So you uh, do you have access to any kind of um, telescope equipment or cameras that you can do anything with? Or what kind of amateur astronomy can you do from, from the uh, ISS? You, uh, to do amateur astronomy on space station, you have to be a bit creative. And, and we don't have <laughs> telescopes. 
And you need to ask yourself, what kind of amateur astronomy should I do on station? And to go to space station and say, take a picture of Jupiter, which maybe is in the same realm as a picture of Jupiter taken from Earth. You have to ask yourself, why Why would you do something on space station that you could do almost <laughs> as good do. a job on the surface of Earth? And so I focused amateur astronomy, my efforts on things that you can't do from the surface of Earth. My main effort in that was wide field astrophotography where you capture a limb of the earth in the field of view because there's no way as an amateur astronomer that you can do that. And when you do the wide field uh, astrophotography and you see stars cycling through because of your orbital motion and there's the the large and small Magellanic clouds. And then the next thing you see is a spiral galaxy in Andromeda and then on and on and on. You can see both Northern and Southern hemisphere stars at once from an orbital uh, viewpoint. It, it's just amazing that, that you see the Southern cross uh, followed by Polaris a few minutes later. And sometimes you can see them both at the same time. It, so, so that's how I focused my amateur astronomy. And I used the equipment, the, the photography equipment that is on space station just for natural documentation, ranging from 14 millimeter wide angle lenses to 1200 millimeter telephoto lenses. Oh, that's cool. I mean, there's not, yeah, the earth makes one hell of a foreground object. That's for sure. So <laughs> for, for amateur astronomy, every time I've flown in space, I brought a full aperture solar filter that uh, is designed to fit over the entrance exact uh, aperture of our 1200 millimeter telephoto lens. And it's a F five, six lens. So it's a big hunk of glass. It's it, the entrance aperture is about like that. And so I have this full aperture solar filter and I was able to do a lot of solar amateur uh, solar astronomy from space station. And I've recorded two total solar eclipses from space station. And then I was last time I was on space station uh, it was uh, I was there for the second transit of Venus. And that, and, and I was able to record Ooh. the transit of Venus across the solar disk from orbit over about an eight-hour period. Oh man, that that and, must and have been so, amazing! I just wanted to point out before we get too far, the solar filter you were holding it was about eight inches. Uh, th this is audio, so they couldn't see what you were doing. We were looking at you on video, so it was about eight or looks like eight or eight or ten inches in diameter. Is that right? The solar filter. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's closer. Uh, hang on here. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Oh, okay. Uh, well, well, here it is. This is the solar filter. This solar filter has been oh, to okay. space station three times now, and and, and it looks uh, like a mylar. And, and, it looks like a mylar filter. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's 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 the stretched mylar film that amateur astronomers can buy, and and I just flew this in my personal kit. 
because uh, we're allowed to fly a, a few a few items of our own uh, on our space missions, and I knew there was not a solar filter, and I I uh, measured uh, the what was required to fit on our uh, uh, long telephoto lenses, and I and I uh, got this uh, got that filter. So so this one, uh, you know, this one this filter has probably spent over three years on space station uh, because it, it uh, on my first mission was in 2002 and, and uh, we were on orbit when Columbia burned up and we came back in our Soyuz and then uh, shuttles didn't fly for another two and a half years. So this, this filter sat on station for almost three years and then it's flown to station on my other two flights uh, so, uh, so anyway, it's, it's a well-traveled solar filter. Don, do you remember the, the, I don't know if there were video or just time-lapse photography that you showed us at dinner of the earth and you were seeing like the lightning and everything light up that you had done from the space station. I'd love for our viewers or listeners to be able to see that. What's the best way for them to find your work? Um, one way is if if you could send me a Dropbox, I could send you a lot of these these uh, videos that I've put together, and and you could go ahead and post them. Um, yeah. There's a, a lot of them that are available on the internet. If you if you search, uh, I, gosh, my last name and amateur astronomy or nighttime uh, time lapse movies, you'll come up to some of them. Yeah, we'll we'll grab those and we'll throw them on spacejunkpodcast.com for people to see. I just remember when we when you showed us those, I remember there was this really long pause from me and Tony, and it just got awkward because we didn't say anything, but like we were just speechless because it's not something you ever think like it. It's hard to believe it's real, honestly. When you see it the, for the first time, it's just so beautiful. And the perspective is so different than anything you can imagine when you're seeing lightning from above the lightning and then the whole context of the earth with it. You know, lightning from space is amazing, uh, partly because you are seeing it from above, but even more so your field of view from low earth orbit is of the order of a half a continent. And, and I, I like, and uh, one way to, to point this out is when we are over central Australia, you can see the East coast and the West coast of Australia at the same time. So that's your field of view. You can see the whole continent of Australia at the same time. And, Wow. And what this allows you to do is see phenomenology on a length scale that's impossible to see from an airplane or from a mountaintop or your feet on the ground. And to get back to the lightning, when you look at a huge thunderstorm, and there are huge thunderstorms over Central Africa that basically seem like they take half the continent of Africa at one time, a single thunderstorm. And what you notice is that there is some kind of connection between lightning in one part of the storm 
and lightning hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a different part of the same storm. It's like, a, a, it's like slave flashes that photographers use where a flash from one strobe will set off a flash in another strobe. And you can see this synchronicity on the scale of half a continent with these mega thunderstorms. And that I found was one of the most amazing things about seeing lightning from space. That and the possibility of seeing uh, a whole host of upward directed lightning, sprites and elves and things like that. And I, uh, on my next flight, I want to pay special attention to see if I could see Steve, uh, this uh, interesting. Uh, uh, a phenomenon that is is also uh, associated with the upper atmosphere. Steve. Steve. S T E V E. It's uh, it, it's something that amateur astronomers have been photographing now for a number of years, and it's a it's an amazing high temperature atmospheric plasma that seems to 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 be in the northern latitudes. And amateur astronomers now that are doing nighttime wide field imagery, uh, particularly with auroras and fades, are catching uh, this elusive phenomenon called Steve. And you can you can chase it down on the internet. And and I would love to be able to try to record uh, uh, record this phenomenology from a space station. So that is makes Steve a lot an acronym sense. or is that really what they call it? I, uh, you know, is Steve an uh, acronym? Honest, or I, just... I, I don't know. I, I, it, it Maybe it's both. <laughs> I've never heard of this thing called Steve. I haven't either. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I didn't understand either when you were talking about the, the majesty of the lightning straight into, you know, I'd love to visit with Steve. And now, and now I want to visit. When I go out next time, I want to see Steve. And I'm like, wait a minute, did I hear yeah, that? No, right? I've never heard of it either. That's uh yeah, that's amazing. And we definitely will, because I agree, Don, we've gotta we've gotta show people those those videos that you have. They are yeah. mind blowing. And yeah. so we'll put yeah, those I'm, up I'm on happy, Facebook uh, uh, on our website. Yeah, we'll have to have a, a large file transfer protocol because uh, they're they're too big to email, uh, and unless you dumb the resolution down, and and you, you don't want to do it. No, 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 definitely. We'll post full resolution because they they were truly, I mean, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Just absolutely yeah, and, gorgeous and terrifying and, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I don't find them terrifying, but uh, but one thing I do want to talk a little bit about. Uh, the making of these videos, they're, they're, they're time lapse. So I would set up a full FX sensor camera uh, to do intervalometry, a picture every half a second or a picture every second. Oh, it seems to be a good frame rate for your orbital velocity. And it also allows enough exposure so that you can record the low light level. And, and so I, I, you know, one night pass, you may have 3,000 individual FX-sized images, and then they get downlinked. And what I would do is I would do a, a dark frame before each sequence 
and a dark frame after each sequence because the camera warms up and we get quite a bit of uh, cosmic ray damage on our uh, detector arrays uh, over time and the dark frames have much of that detector damage so once I get on the ground then I will the first one-third of the imagery I will use the first dark frame the last third I will use the uh, last dark frame went, uh, taken after the camera was warm. And for the middle third, I will average the two dark frames and use that for the middle third. And, and that does a fairly decent job of uh, repairing the cosmic ray damage from the hot pixels. And, and then, then I, I will spend, gosh, maybe a week and a half to two weeks working on just one 30-second uh, uh, night pass uh, time lapse. It, it's, a, it's a labor of love, and I think amateur astronomers realize the, the time sink it takes to work with your imagery after you have taken it. Well, especially imagery like that. I mean, it, it's one of the most beautiful perspectives I think humans have ever seen. And uh, it, just just like an amateur astronomer, though, there you are hacking the calibration files. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, one thing, I would downlink all these files, and I was getting notes from the, the NASA imagery experts saying, why are you taking all these black pictures? And, and they, they, you know, I, I had to tell them that I was taking these black pictures because sometimes I would take a hundred black pictures. I would, I would take the cameras and I'd have up to three to four separate cameras all running at the same time. And you go through a whole series of dark frames with each camera at different ISOs. And, and so I would downlink a folder with, with two or 300 dark frames. And, and they were just curious as to, why why I'm taking all these these uh pictures with the lens cap on and and so so the uh, these these uh, dark frames are buried in the NASA archives and and I know what to do with them but uh, most people do not understand the value of these dark frames uh when you are using them to correct for cosmic ray damage on uh, nighttime imagery yeah, I think our listeners will very much appreciate that you did that calibration. In in amateur astronomy, it's it's one of the first things you come across when you start taking images is calibrating those files, especially with dark frames because of the long exposure. So yeah, and, um, and yeah, I, I think experimented with uh, with flat fields and quickly decided, at least at the time, that flat field uh, calibration was. Uh, not necessarily the best way I should spend my time collecting data. I would be better Amen. off to to take more pictures out the window than collect flat fields. So you you need to you need to cut your losses oh. to decide what is the low hanging fruit for dim, digital imagery from an amateur astronomy point of view when you are presented with a with a rare opportunity. Well, great, Don. Now we can't do photometry on your images. Thank you for not taking flats. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like a running joke that I never take flats on any of my images. So um, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, Don. Um, 
So you, you mentioned that the sensors undergo additional stress because they're in space from the cosmic rays. What's happening biologically? Like, have you, do you have worry? Because I, I think about this because of all the hype for jumping straight to Mars. I, I always assumed we would spend a lot more time on the moon first. And I think that we should because there's so much to learn about how our bodies are going to handle being, you know, outside of the protection of the earth, um, you know, the earth's magnetosphere. And so is that something you worry about being in space is what's happening? Any damage to your cells? Uh, yes and no. The radiation level, particularly in low earth orbit is, is a moderate because uh, you're still well within Earth's magnetosphere, and that deflects a lot of the higher energy stuff. And, and it, it deflects a lot of the solar protons and solar electrons. And so the radiation level in low Earth orbit is not the same as what you would have out in deep space, say, for example, orbiting the moon. And, and it, it's a tractable level. Uh, I've spent over a year in space and my lifetime dose, I could probably spend another two and a half years in space before I would get to my career radiation uh, dose level. So, so it's, it's not as bad as you may think. Um, and what I find is as a biological creature, for the most part, we can repair are radiation damage. But if you look at a sensor on a camera, when it gets zapped by a high energy galactic cosmic ray, that pixel either screams 000 or 255, 255, 255, and, and there's no in between. And, and that pixel is forever damaged and after about six months uh, a standard fx camera sensor will have accumulated significant cosmic ray damage where the uh, the images if you want to do big enlargements start to show degradation and after a year we typically replace all our camera bodies on orbit um with with new new cameras, uh, but your body seems to be able to repair itself for low level uh, radiation damage, and and you you take a licking and keep on ticking, and and at these low levels of radiation, um, uh, so uh, at least in low Earth orbit for six month missions. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, issue with human beings and radiation. Once we start returning to the moon, particularly for longer duration missions and going elsewhere like to Mars, uh, that that could be a different story. What's your longest stay, Ben? My, my longest stay was like 193 days, you know, a little bit over uh, half a year. Yeah, I'm still an active astronaut, which means we do all the training. And like I uh, said earlier, I'm, I'm spending about two days a week actively training. So, you know, two fifths of all my time is just working on training and keeping your flight skills up. And then the other 
three-fifths of your time, you're, you're doing a ground, uh, some kind of a ground technical job. So I'm still actively training. I'm still an active astronaut. While we're on the subject, can I just ask real quick about Artemis? Um, are you hopeful that you'll be on Artemis or, or will you be, are you be on the ISS team or um, what are your thoughts on Artemis? Things like that. Uh, uh, I, I love the concept of Artemis. I love the concept of returning to the moon and then going beyond. And every active astronaut in the office is eligible for Artemis missions. And it doesn't mean that every active astronaut will fly on Artemis, but we are all trained up and we are all qualified to fly on any of the spacecraft that NASA has in their inventory or commercial spacecraft or on Russian spacecraft. So, so in some respects, we're like mercenaries. We'll fly on any spacecraft that happens to be <laughs> on a launch pad and we can walk, walk on. So that means at SLS, if you want to be, or you could be on uh, uh, SpaceX, one of those uh, Falcon Heavies, maybe, or something like yeah. that. So yeah, we, we have people cool. in that's the awesome. office training on all the different variants of commercial spacecraft, and then uh, uh, I've I've already been doing uh, evaluations on Orion Ascents. So. Uh, so, you know, there you have it. And, and currently our lunar lander program is not far enough along so that we know what the cockpit layout is going to be and, and what the control parameters are going to be for doing a lunar descent and landing. And when we, when we have that degree of fidelity in our lunar landers, then we'll start training on that. Right. That's still very early on. They haven't selected yet, I think, what uh, what that's even going to look like. So, Well, I don't care who you are. Going into space has got to be just a little bit nerve-wracking, right? So so I wanted to ask you about how your family uh, and, you know, what does your family feel about all of this? And, and uh, what's it like as a when you're getting ready to go up into space? Are, are you guys like you know, super like, is everybody scared or what's the, what's the feeling like uh, just prior to going up into space and the effect that it has on your family? Uh, my family backs what I do a hundred percent and they think it's cool that I'm still an active astronaut and I could get another space mission. And, and so that is an essential aspect of being an astronaut is you have to have buy-in for your whole family. And uh, the emotions do run a little, uh, uh, they're, they're a bit on the intense side when you say your last goodbyes and, and walk out to the rocket. Um, Human beings seem to be well-equipped for doing that. Uh, humanity has been doing this as individuals for millennia. So it's just a different venue. It's the same human story, but a different venue. Instead of getting on a ship or a horse and riding off, uh, you're getting on a rocket. And, and human beings are well-equipped for doing this, and so are our families. It's a lot. It's, I mean, it's... It's a lot to ask of anyone. It's even more to ask of yourself. Why do you do this? What made you decide? I mean, you had finished your PhD. 
and you could have done other things. You could have done whatever you wanted. What, why do you do this, Don? I think the best answer to a question like that was uh, coined by Sir Edmund Hillary, <clears throat> because it is there. Uh, when asked why to climb Mount Everest, to add, and that uh, it's it's part of the frontier. It's some place where humanity needs to expand into for places to live and resources to use. And that is just so fundamental to my being, the fabric of who I am, that given the opportunity to fly in space, I'll fly in space. And that's, that's what I want to do because it is the frontier. The answers are not in the back of the book, and you have to figure things out for yourself. And that is, uh, uh, th those are traits of any frontier, whether you're going down to the bottom of the ocean or into the stratosphere or looking through the eyepiece of a telescope. The answers are not in the back of the book, and you have to figure things out for yourself. And when you do make a discovery, it enriches your mind and tickles your imagination and, and is a metric. Exploration is a metric for how viable your society happens to be. This is, this is what I love about NASA, is I think that NASA's accomplishments come with the most capitalized W in the word we. You know, like we we landed on the moon as humanity when NASA made that happen. And these big things, I mean, the, the missions you're talking about in the future, we get to celebrate that as humanity, as if all of us are doing it. And the reason is it's right at the edge of what we get to call human potential and capability. And I mean, you're, you're literally living your life, pushing that boundary further. And I think it's it's the most incredible thing that we do as humanity. But I love that NASA is committed to these missions that are so right there on the edge that if it's an accomplishment, it's just by default an accomplishment for the capitalized we. I, I agree with what you just said, Dustin. Uh, it's and and it all falls under the realm of a frontier. And unlike a lot of frontiers on Earth, when you go down into the ocean or when you go into space, human beings cannot go there. We're not innately meant to be there. And you have to take technology with you to provide you with all the things you need as a human being in order to survive. And, and going down into the bottom of the ocean is that way. We don't have gills. Uh, we don't have scales. Uh, we, we don't have fins. And we need to take mechanical accoutrements with us in order to go into the ocean. And we need to do the same thing when we go into space. So it's this amazing blend of technology that allows us to go someplace where human beings were not innately meant to be. And that is uh, one of the, the, the traits of frontiers today. 
Okay, Don, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me and Dustin. This has been a very exciting time. We could go for days on this, but I know that that you have to, we, we only have your time for a short period, but I want to thank you for taking time out to spend time with us. And we hope maybe you might consider coming back for another podcast recording. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it doesn't hurt to ask. I I can talk <laughs> about this kind of stuff for hours, particularly if it involves amateur astronomy. I'm I would be honored to do another podcast. Don, just thank you so much for making the time to to join us on here. Uh, it's fascinating what you're doing. We'll make sure that we get those videos up for people on uh, spacejunkpodcast.com. I really think that that's something people should see. We very much appreciate you doing okay. what you do and for joining us for this hour. Thank you. Bye now. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.